touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkbaum. Lauren has come back to talk with us about a subject you, you wrote a script for a, a video series we do. Uh, yeah, over on Brain Stuff, I'm one of the writers on our illustrious writing team. <laughs> team of writers. They're, yes. they're amazing. They're I, the ones who make me sound good, because otherwise I sound like this. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, you make me sound good, Jonathan. Oh, thank you, Lauren. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, uh, we decided to do an episode on pneumatic tubes. Yeah. And I was the one who wrote that thing, and I said, hey, this is a two minute video uh this isn't really covering everything i think there is to say about pneumatic tubes so jonathan why don't we do a tech stuff episode about it right instead of a two minute video we're going to make a two-part episode series because we have 10 pages of notes i think i think that that is officially the most notes we have ever compiled on anything except for maybe dmca or at&t or one of those big like three-parters yeah yeah, those those definitely get uh, pretty intense. But it was interesting that we could actually cuz you, you think pneumatic tubes, especially people who have have had any kind of uh uh, uh interaction with these like in a drive-through bank teller type thing. Uh right, like, sure. You wouldn't think that would necessarily end up being Merit. This, Yeah, but as it turns out one, it, it's super cool and fascinating. Yes. And two, it there's a, a rich history of, oh yeah, of it being used in lots of different ways. So one of the cool things that you brought to light is that, uh, you know, the, these are not just little systems that are used within like that bank, the drive-up uh, yeah, bank. Yeah, within a single teller. building to take your bank receipt to the teller when you don't feel like getting out of your car. Right. The, these actually used to be, and in some cases maybe still are, much more extensive. Uh yeah. See, there used to be. These huge networks of tubes buried beneath cities that let people send messages to each other faster than ever before. Yeah, I've heard of this. The, the Internet, it's a it's a series of tubes. Uh, no, no. Before before the Internet. But ARPANET, I mean, that was only like three computers. I mean, it was it was in the 1850s. Wow. Yeah, pneumatic tubes date back quite a ways. And so, yeah, when when Lauren said we're going to talk about a series of tubes, I thought we were going to talk about the whole, you know, good old Senator Ted from Alaska talking about how the Internet is a series of tubes, which, by the way, just for the record, I think is a decent analogy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I mean, it was I mean, it is funny, but it was. And also, as it turns out, some telecom cables are currently being housed in old pneumatic tubes. So it is a series of tubes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So what exactly is a pneumatic tube? Well, it is a pipeline that uses air pressure to move a canister from one point to another. Okay. Um, that, that seems pretty simple. <laughs> so like it seems pretty simple, yeah. but wait, there's more. Uh there yeah, I I mean these these things have come a very long way as technology has advanced, uh motors have advanced. Motors started existing like like electricity wasn't really a thing when pneumatic right, tubes sure. first started up. Uh computers happened. Right. And actually, you might think, well, computers would end up, uh, you know, making the whole purpose of these things uh, obsolete. But that's not the case. In fact, there are still very high tech pneumatic tube systems that are uh, at play in various locations uh, for good reasons. And it turns out that the computers are necessary elements in that in order to be kind of like traffic control. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of cool that 
this thing that we would normally think was replaced by computers is actually complementing them in specific use cases. Obviously, if you want to send a message to your friend across town, you're more likely to either drop a letter in the mail or much more likely to send text a message, them, text them, I am them on Facebook, something yeah. on those lines. Yeah. But there are many important uses for pneumatic tubes. Um, we will and, get into many of those later. But yeah. first, let us talk specifically about how pneumatic tubes work. Yeah, let's talk about the physics. What is going on with a pneumatic tube? And so walk me through the you wrote you've you've described an excellent way of thinking through this so that we have a logical progression to get to the actual mechanics of pneumatic tubes. Okay. So, pneumatic, uh, in case you don't know, means uh, works via pressurized gas, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so, the air around us seems pretty thin, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's actually a soup. It's actually a liquid made up of lightweight atoms and particles like uh, nitrogen and oxygen and argon and carbon dioxide and ozone and dust bunnies and et cetera. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that soup is at pretty much a constant density and pressure around us while we're walking around on Earth's surface, uh, though it's a little bit thinner the further away from sea level you get, right? So, right. The higher you climb on a mountain, for example... Mm-hmm. The less dense the air, thus you have le- lower uh, air pressure at those altitudes. Uh, right. And it's useful to think about that because uh, one great way of thinking about air pressure and, and how it helps stuff work is by thinking of how your ears pop when you go up a, a, in a really tall elevator or, or up a mountain or up in an airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because your, your ears pop because of the uh, density of the air outside of your body being lower than the density of the air in your ears. Okay, you've got this uh, little tube of air in your in your head called the eustachian tube, mm-hmm. and it lets your it lets your eardrum vibrate, which is important for your eardrum to function. Right, that's what allows you to interpret sound. Right, because sound is a physical uh, uh, phenomenon. It vibrates the eardrum, which makes some cilia go Wiggle wacky, wack, wacky woo. Yeah. <laughs> That signals the brain that Look, the wiki wiki. crazy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to reenact once more with feeling <laughs> uh, line by line. But no, it, it, it does. It, you know, the eardrum is what ends up uh, causing these other bones in your in your ear to move in such a way that cilia inside of this one container uh, uh, start to vibrate, fluctuate. And that sends electrical signals to your brain, which then is interpreted as sound. So without that vibration, you don't hear. Uh, and without this tube, you wouldn't get that vibration. Mm-hmm. It would have nothing to vibrate against. Mm-hmm. It would just be all solid meat, and that doesn't vibrate as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sound can travel through solids, but it's not as effective going from air to solid than mm-hmm. from solid to solid. So, right. you know, it's important. So this eustachian tube is shut off with muscles that are tied into your uh, like mouth-throat-swallowing muscles. This is one of those things I always thought was weird that that our ears are connected to other I mean the human body's gross y'all. It, it especially the sinus type system. <laughs> yeah. Uh and and that's that's why if you swallow you hear like a tiny little pop. Yeah. And that is the the muscles of that tube opening up and and letting a fresh supply of air in, which is important because the air that gets into the tube uh, gets absorbed by the walls of the tube, and so it needs to be replenished periodically. Right. Right. That's also why your head hurts so much when uh, when you have a cold because those muscles get stuffed up by gunk. 
Oh, and good. you can't replenish that air supply and so then everything hurts. When you're like, I can't hear because I have a cold. It seems mm, weird, because, but that's why. Yeah, yeah. That's because the, uh, b- because your, your eardrum literally cannot vibrate because there's not a replenishment of air in the tube. That's kind of cool. I mean, I, I never thought of it that way. So interesting. <laughs> okay. So all of this is a sidebar. I promise we're getting back to pneumatics. <laughs> um, so, so as you gain altitude, mm-hmm. uh, the air inside of your ears, starts exerting pressure on those membranes. Um, it, it starts pushing. Right. Because it's at that higher density than the air outside. Gotcha. Um, it, it, you know, it, it wants to be chill, like that lower pressure air. You never let it hang loose. <laughs> yeah. When you create this pressure differential, then there, uh, that's where you're starting to get that feeling of something's just kind of like you get that ache uh-huh it, it, it can get pretty painful too if you especially like you know you hear about babies and kids having real problems because they haven't figured out how to uh, voluntarily uh yeah. open up their their restriction tube right. yeah and so when the difference in pressure is great enough that you either voluntarily or involuntarily open up that restriction tube that the sudden release of that pressurized air is pretty forceful and creates that pop yeah that's when your ears go pop. Um, but that is just one example of pressure at work around us. Uh, this next one that I've got for you is a little bit more technical. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Straws. Like what the pig built his house out of? Uh, no, drinking straws. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So crazy straws in my case, but yeah. Uh, sure. Sure. Crazy straws. Totally. Uh, so you're not technically pulling liquid up through a straw you're, you're creating an opportunity for the liquid to push itself up <laughs> so wait i'm motivating the liquid through you're straws? motivating the liquid yes exactly okay. the, uh, the suction that you apply with your mouth creates an, an area of low pressure at the top of the straw which means that the relatively high pressure liquid at the bottom of the straw pushes a sip of your drink up into your mouth now this is really interesting to me because i talked about a similar thing with josh clark Oh, uh-huh. When we covered how toilets work. Because we had to talk about siphoning. Oh, sure. And uh-huh. and the siphoning in, uses a similar principle, and it does require this difference in pressure as well. So uh, very interesting. So how does this compare to, say, pneumatic tubes? Well, it's it's basically the same thing. Um, the, the, the tube part is airtight, like a straw, mm-hmm. um, except it has sealable hatches at either end instead of, you know, straw bits. Sure. Yeah. Um, so so you, you put a canister in one hatch. Yeah. Okay. It helps a whole lot if the canister has some kind of like flexible skirts on either end that can seal to the interior edges of the tube. Oh, so that air is not passing around the around canister. the canister. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, to make it the most effective. Uh, so you so you put your canister in there, you close the hatch and you press your go button. OK. Um, now, on the other end of the tube, pressing that button will open up a vent and start a motor. Now, uh, one of two things will happen at this point. Right. So this all depends upon where the canister is in relation to where the blower is. Right. So here's the boring one, because because <laughs> you get to take the really cool one. Here's the boring one. <laughs> okay. If the canister is on the blower side, so in other words, uh, this is like the 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 blower being a fan essentially. Right. That can either blow air into the tube or pull air out of the tube. If it's on the blower side, then the only way to move the canister to the other end of the tube is to blow air against the canister, pushing it. So you're increasing the air pressure on the side of the blower, and it just blows the canister across. So this is essentially the same as when you shoot blow darts at your coworkers. Uh, or when I say you, when I shoot blow darts at Ben Bolin. Um, he has wondered what that tingling sensation has been, and no one tell him, but that's essentially it. 
Answers so, found. Excellent. Yeah. But if the canister is on the opposite side, see, the blower on a pneumatic tube system typically is at just one end. You don't have two blowers. Uh, right, right. And it's not, um, uh, especially classically, these things weren't always powerful enough to necessarily push a canister. Right, right. So if the canister is on the opposite end, like I, I've sent something out, now I'm expecting it to come back. Mm-hmm. But my blower is at the, the end where I am at. I have to I have to find a different way to move the canister. I can't push it by by turning the fan to blow air into the tube. So what do I do then? Uh well, the 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 motor will still drive a fan down at the other end of the tube. Mm-hmm. Um but but this time it will start to pull air out of the tube. Okay. Uh venting it out of the tube entirely. Gotcha. Okay. This suction, uh, j- just like a straw, creates a partial vacuum at that end of the tube with the fan, an mm-hmm. area of low pressure. So, uh, you know, down down at the canister end of the tube, the higher pressure air behind the canister wants to expand to mm-hmm. settle the difference, right? Gotcha. Um, so it will push the canister through the tube. So the canister is still being pushed. It's right. just that it's being pushed because the air behind it is a, at a higher pressure than the air in front of it. Exactly. Yeah. That's so cool. Uh, so in most of these systems, when the canister reaches its destination, um, the, the end of the tube, it will trigger a trap door to close behind it, which will also cue the motor to turn off and the vents to close, meaning that the partial vacuum that's been created in the tube will be broken and uh, your buddy at the other end can open up the hatch and take out the canister. And that makes perfect sense because obviously if you had continued to have that vacuum there, opening up the hatch would have been difficult at best. Real hard. Yeah. Because yeah. that, that air pressure on the outside of the tube is pushing against it. You know, it's this same sort of deal. It's just one of those things that uh, you, you have to have all the, the little parts in place for the system to work properly. Mm-hmm. And the big advantage of this sort of system is that you don't have to connect little motors to all those canisters, right? The individual right, units right. don't need anything. They don't need any moving parts. Yeah, the whole the system as a whole can have a single, well, it can have a single motor. A lot of the time these days, they've got really complex multiple motor things sure. going on. Yeah, especially if you have, like, lots of potential destinations. Yeah, sure. But, uh, but if you had a very simple system where it was just an out and back, you would just need one one motor turning one fan mm-hmm. or, or, you know, some people just refer to them as air compressors, but mm-hmm. technically you're using a it's, fan anyway. It's a fan. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, that's really interesting. And... um there are also some interesting advantages or, or rather design elements that have been made to make sure that the canisters arrive safely. Uh, right, because uh, in, in the original systems, uh, canisters would arrive by basically just crashing into the opposite end of the tube. Yeah, they and they could be going pretty darn fast, too, oh, depending yeah. on how powerful that fan was. Yeah, tens of miles an hour, which, uh, which I mean, usually I say is kind of a joke, but actually that's pretty quick. Yeah, especially for something like if you haven't designed it just right, it's going to, you know, just, just smash Shatter. up. Yeah, yeah. or it's going to end up di- causing damage to the tubes, and obviously mm-hmm. that's a problem. So uh, there are a couple of different ways of slowing them down properly. Uh, one of those uses air brakes, which is mm-hmm. essentially just, again, pressurized air, but now on the low pressure side so that it can slow down the canister from, you know, its its inevitable crash toward oblivion. Or uh, bumpers, like mm-hmm. little rubber bumpers. Sure. That can come out from the sides to slow, like uh, the way a lot of um, uh, roller coaster brakes work. Uh, and also they often have some form of switch that once a canister passes that switch, it activates it, which then turns off power to the blower. Uh, now, momentum's still a thing, so you have to plan f- 
for that as well. It's uh, not sure, like it'll sure. stop immediately. But yeah, yeah, as, sort of like the, the trapdoor idea, but with a little bit of a longer glide after the trapdoor. Right. So now I'm going to try and explain, without the use of visual aids, <laughs> how, how a simple <laughs> pneumatic tube system using a couple of valves and a switch would uh, help a canister come to a stop. Okay. All right. So uh, you've got, with the two valves, these create a pathway for air in front of the canister to vent out for most of the trip while leaving enough for the very end to act as a cushion. So in other words, you need a way for air to vent outward or else you'll never create that area of low pressure. Oh, right, right. But you need a way to keep a little bit of air in there so that it can act as a braking system. Okay. So you've got to figure out how to do that. And when I saw uh, uh, there was a uh, a series of illustrations I saw online that explained this really well. And uh, so I'm going to try and walk you through it the best way I know how. So we're playing Dungeons and Dragons, y'all. <laughs> and here's here's what's happening. So your adventurer uh-huh. <laughs> is in a tunnel and behind okay. you is a giant spinning fan of death. Oh, yeah. I think I've been on this module before. Yeah. Sure. OK, so in this case, the giant spinning fan of death is currently slow. It's it's actually not even moving at all. It's it's no one's tripped that trap yet. Okay. Uh, you start walking down the tunnel. So the fan is behind you and you just have a big expanse of tunnel in front of you. Mm-hmm. Now, as you walk down the tunnel, you see that there is a split from the tunnel off, let's say, to your left. And it's uh, just a second smaller tunnel that you see. Okay. I kick down the door. No, no, no. There's no door. Oh. It's just a, just an opening. Okay. Sure. Just an opening. But, uh, but I like your initiative. You didn't <laughs> even have to roll for it. All right. <laughs> But you continue on down and you come to your first actual door in that main tunnel. Oh, okay. Now now you can do your kicking. Oh, I kicked down the door. And it works because that door will only open outward into the main hall. This Ooh. is a valve and it's a one-way valve. Oh, okay. Right? So air can go from the fan through the main pipe, but it can't be sucked back this way. Ah. Got it? Okay. So if, if air is if air's being pulled, that door slams shut and nothing, not even your mighty kick will open it. So since there are no differentials in air pressure, your kick opens the door. You continue down the hall. I'm going to skip the kobold encounter. As you continue down the tunnel, uh, you see a door on your left. Now, this door is the other valve. This is the valve that is the bypass valve. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you were to kick down that door, which you can do. Oh, uh, yeah, I kicked down the door. Excellent. So the door opens inward into that secondary tunnel. Is this there a bugbear? There are no bugbears. Oh, okay. There is an owlbear, but he's currently on break. Okay. So you kick down the door. Uh, that opens the pathway to the bypass mm-hmm. uh, uh, t- tube or bypass pipe. So the first tunnel that you passed way back when on the left, it's the same. It's that same pathway. So this p- door will only open when air is being pulled through back toward the fan. So ah. when it's being sucked back toward the fan. Mm-hmm. So that way you always have one valve that's open and one valve that's closed. And it all depends upon airflow. So there's no mechanical or electrical need to to change these valves. It's just the airflow that does it automatically. Mm-hmm. So if the airflow is being pulled back, the bypass valve is open, the main valve is shut. And because the bypass pipe completely bypasses that main valve, air can still flow through. So... Now we're going to have to use a an example to talk about what happens when the canister comes by. So the canister starts rocketing down the path toward the fan side. Mm-hmm. So air is being pulled through. It 
ends up passing a switch. That switch tells the fan to stop blowing, but of course that's going to take a little time. Mm -hmm. So the canister continues down toward the pathway. The canister ends up passing that bypass valve, Mm -hmm. which is open. So once the canister has cleared the bypass valve, because you have an airtight seal between the main valve and the canister, that air between the two starts to get compressed. Mm -hmm. And that compressed air begins to push back against the canister, slowing it down. And thus you have air brakes. That was a long way to go for that explanation. But honestly, without the use of visual aids, I wasn't sure how I was going to explain how this actually works in a way that would remotely make sense. Uh, you now get 230 gold pieces a, p- a piece and uh, the princess is in another castle. Oh, OK. OK. Well, good adventure. Thank you, Jonathan. You're welcome. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a level three game master. Um <laughs> Yeah, so obviously if the if the fan were switched the other way where the canister is blowing down the the pipe, the main valve would be open, the bypass valve would be shut, and that would be it. It right. would it would be no different otherwise. Uh so yeah, that's that's the basic way that this works. And that's you know, that's a very, very, very simple version of uh, the yeah. two. As as complicated as that just sounded out loud. Yeah. Uh that that is as basic as it gets, yeah. really. Yeah. You know, I, I said a while ago that these things have been around since the 1850s at least. Mm-hmm. So let us go to the Wayback Machine. Oh my gosh, it's been out of use for so long. It's kind of dusty in here. It's a little, yeah. And you know what? As 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 cramped as this thing is, it's still cooler than Josh and Chuck's studio. I mean, not not like in a Style sense. I mean, physically, the temperature is lower. Physically, yeah, cooler. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, no, they they're they're pretty hot. Yeah, they are. They're, they're a couple of hot guys. All right. Well, anyway, let's just. Uh, where are we setting this to? Uh, to to Greece. Sure. Well, okay. Uh, like ancient Greece, modern Greece, Ptolemaic Greece. Okay, I was really hoping you were going to say Greece too, but okay, Ptolemaic <laughs> Greece, it is. Here we go. Well, we do have chills and they are multiplying, <sighs> but that was Grease 1. I'm sorry. That's I don't okay. remember any that's, lyrics that's from awesome. Grease 2 off the top you of my really head. You really don't want to. <laughs> it's, it's, it says a lot for you and little for me. So there was a mathematician who started writing about the concept of using pressurized gas to produce mechanical motion. I know this guy. Yeah? Hero of Alexandria, also known as Heron. He's a... A pretty smart dude. Was, he was. Did you, uh, you know, we talked about him. Or he is, since we are here in the Wayback Machine. That's true, yeah. And he's across the street. Uh, he's right over there. Yeah. He's he... kind of working on something else right now. Yeah. I think we're weirding him out by looking at him. Yeah, maybe, okay, well, let's just act casual. Okay. All right. So uh, one, something else that he was really known for, by the way, uh, he was known for working with steam engines. In oh, fact, right. pressurized gas, it makes sense, right? Sure. It's related. Mm-hmm. He noticed that air had the ability to physically push against things and that if you had a way of generating air movement, you know, he even thought, oh, air must be made of something Mm because it can have a force. Mm -hmm. So very forward thinking. He didn't have the words to describe this in the way that we do today, but he understood that this had a way of doing work and that if you could find a way to channel that, you could make air do work for you. And that gave him a lot of thought about steam including one of my favorite proposed inventions. There's no 
Uh, no record of it actually existing. Yeah. And I, I think we I think we talked about this one in our episode about steam engines. Yeah, I'm pretty sure one. we did. This is the the magical way to open temple doors. And so you start with a, a flaming brazier, which is a you know a, a, a container that contains like hot coals essentially. And you have that connected to a boiler. The boiler boils water. Water is converted into steam. That steam goes through a long tube that's essentially a condenser tube. It condenses back into water and starts dripping into a bucket. When enough of water has dripped into that bucket, that bucket, which is suspended by a rope from a pulley, starts to get heavier and heavier, pulling downward. Mm -hmm. And that pulley system ends up turning a couple of columns that open up the temple doors. So by lighting a fire and and, uh, sacrificing something to the gods, Mm -hmm. eventually the doors doors open. open. And it's magic. Uh, it was pretty brilliant. He's he actually came up with a lot of different really cool ideas, um, and so uh, yeah, we definitely wanted to call him out. But then we have to skip ahead a couple of you know like a millennia or two, you know. Oh yeah, you know you know how it goes with science during some of those intervening years between yeah Ptolemaic Greece and say the 1600s, right? Um, the the Renaissance, you know, <laughs> back when everyone suddenly said, "Hey, remember when we used to be smart." We liked that. Yeah. That was fun. It was great. You know, we were a lot, a lot fewer of us were dying of the plague back then. We liked that time. That was good. Yeah. Uh, so a fellow by the name of Dennis Papin, uh, I think that's how you said that, uh, would present a paper on an invention that he or an idea that he was calling the double pneumatic pump to the Royal Society of London. That's pretty. That's pretty. That's a pretty impressive name, the double pneumatic double pump. Double pneumatic pump. It's yeah. twice as good as the it single is, clearly, pump. It is, clearly, obviously. Um, but nothing more would come of this until the early 19th century. Yeah, that's when uh, there was a, a Scottish engineer by the name of William Murdoch. Uh, I have to mention William Murdoch because while, while he had essentially invented the pneumatic tube, he didn't do a whole lot with it. It was some of his... I hesitate to use the word like students because they weren't even apprenticed to him. But people who worked within the same field who were exposed to his ideas were able to actually implement them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was the one who came up with the concept of using a pneumatic tube in the early 19th century. And others would take that idea and run with it. Uh, yeah. Namely, one British engineer by the name of George Medhurst. Mm-hmm. He would publish a plan in 1810 for a pneumatic transport system now let me ask you is this the one where you like you get in a tube and you press a button and then you just fly across no it's not like in futurama shucks i know no that would hurt a lot i don't recommend doing yeah well okay so they're downsides i mean clearly you'd really need that air brake system to work really well (laughs) and your ears would pop like a mother that's true (laughs) yeah being being uh being subjected to extremely low pressure on one half of your body might not have the best effect overall all right fair enough okay uh so so he was so he was working with uh compressed air yeah, he actually created a, something called the Aeolian Engine in 1800, which was a, an, a kind of like a, a car running on a compressed air in a way. It was a vehicle that used compressed air on the vehicle itself to create a system of propulsion to make the, the vehicle move. So uh, in this case, the, the uh, you know, like we said with the pneumatic tubes, one of the big advantages is that you have the centralized source of power. Mm-hmm. This was the other way around. This is more like, more akin to a motor vehicle. Okay. So, uh, but he, that was an early experiment of his that didn't necessarily 
work out, you know, as like this is going to be the new means of transportation. But it, it he was recognizing the power of compressed air. So then he moved on to create a design for this pneumatic transport system. And it consisted of an iron tube that was six feet high by six feet wide, which is about 1.8 meters each. And had rails along the bottom of this tube. So cars would be set on the rails and then blown through the tubes using compressed air. So essentially the style that we were talking about, the the, the easy, more boring method of hmm. getting mm-hmm. canisters from point A to point B. Uh, but he did he did note that uh, he, he did the math and sussed it out and and thought that if air could be subjected to just 40 pounds per square inch of pressure, just um, it's, it's about two and a half times the amount that the atmosphere exerts upon us. Right now. Yeah, just at sea level. Hanging out at sea level. Yeah. Um, if we could increase that two and a half times, that air molecules could be propelled at uh, like a thousand miles an hour. Wow. Uh, or a thousand six hundred and nine kilometers. You're welcome, Canada. <laughs> and everyone else. Uh, when actually pushing stuff that isn't air, that speed would only be about a hundred miles or 160 kilometers per hour, which... Still pretty fast. Certainly in like 1810 was not too shabby. Yeah. It's uh, not too shabby in 2015 either. <laughs> now, now, unfortunately, uh, he would pass away before he really had a chance to implement any of these ideas. But his ideas would become instrumental for people who were working on actual implementations, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, one of the one of the interesting stories I came across, and I was telling Lauren before we went into the podcast studio that this the stories of these people probably could merit a couple of episodes. Maybe I'll mention it to Stuff You Miss in History class. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because uh, it really fits more in their line than ours. But I want to talk about Samuda and Clegg. So you had the Samuda brothers. That was a, a company that was run by Jacob and Joseph Samuda, who mm-hmm. were primarily shipbuilders. Uh, so they were engineers, but they built ships. Then they partnered with another inventor and engineer named Samuel Clegg, who at one time had worked in a company that used a lot of William Murdoch's inventions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Clegg had been exposed to Murdoch's ideas. Some people refer to him as, as as Murdoch's student, although from all the research I did, it didn't seem like they had a very... like They like knew each other? Yeah, it's kind of like saying Tesla worked for Edison in the sense that, yes, Tesla worked for one of Edison's companies, but was not like directly associated yeah, with Edison for most like, of his life. Go for coffee with the dude. No, especially by the time they ended up being kind of rivals. <laughs> right. But but even in the early days, they didn't it's not like Edison knew everybody who worked for him. Anyway, so their their idea was to lease some already constructed but unopened rail lines. So the idea was they took some rail lines that were had not yet been opened to the public. They had been built but not used. And they were at a place called Wormholt Scrubs. At least that's what it was known by uh, at the time. It is now known as Wormwood Scrubs. With two Bs two instead, B's of, instead one. of one. Yeah. Uh, and they used a pipe set between the two rails as their pneumatic system. So instead of a, an entire huge pneumatic tube encompassing the rails, there was a smaller pneumatic tube set right in the middle of the rails. And uh, the tube had a slot running all the way the length of the tube mm-hmm. at the top of it. OK. All right. So you're, they had a train car that had a pole that essentially extended down into that slot and was attached at the other end inside the tube to a piston. 
Okay, so this is like a pneumatic monorail. Yeah, exactly. The piston acted like a canister would uh-huh. in a normal pneumatic tube. And then you you sit there and think like, well, how do you create the difference in pressure if you've got a if you've got a slot all the way across the open top of this <laughs> tube? You, you can't pressurize the tube. Yeah, there's no there's no way to seal it. So what they did was they created a leather flap mm-hmm. that would essentially be open immediately before and close immediately after the the rod would pass through. Huh, okay. And uh, the the track they were using was on a very gentle slope. And so what they did was they used air to push the train car up the slope to its destination. Mm-hmm. And then on the return trip, they just allowed gravity to bring to the car home. back. Yeah. So you didn't have to have any sort of power to to bring back the, the car. Um, and it was used uh, pretty extensively as kind of a demonstration uh, this sort of t- this kind of of track was starting to get a name. It's called atmospheric railways. Atmos- that's beautiful. Yeah. The the reason they wanted to call it atmospheric was that yes, they're using they're using pressurized air, but the cars themselves can be open to the air, so uh-huh. you're not forced inside a tunnel. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people were worried about getting you know claustrophobic. Sure. Yeah. You know, not all of us do well in tunnels. Um, they're kind of creepy. They can be, certainly. So other atmospheric railways would follow, uh, including some built by uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who we talked about on Tech Stuff in How Subways Work. That was the 700th episode. Ah. Oh. So he was famous for a lot of reasons, uh, one of them being that he dug the Thames Tunnel. Ah. Oh. So uh, he w- he really um, kind of pioneered the methodology for digging tunnels safely, especially under you know, ground that you would technically think would be really unstable, like the bottom of a river. (laughs) Uh Um, And uh, one of his trains, at least from a report I read, during a demonstration hit a top speed of 70 miles per hour, which is about 113 kilometers per hour. Yeah. Uh, But keeping that seal effective, even with those leather flaps, was problematic. And so eventually, because of these issues, the fact that you had to replace that seal often mm-hmm. uh, ended up meaning that when steam engines really started to become popular, the pneumatic train systems like these couldn't compete. And so people just started to go with steam engines that were seen as more reliable than something that you had to constantly maintain. Mm-hmm. So uh, ultimately, um, they <laughs> I, I was going to say these didn't go anywhere, but that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> they go from one place to another place. Sure, sure. No, they they went places. Yeah, but they uh, just didn't take off. <laughs> right. <laughs> I no, guess. no, they literally did not take that, off. Literally and figuratively both. <laughs> yes. Okay. Meanwhile, in the 1850s, telegraph systems began to really boom. Um, which I mention a for reference and b because uh, it, it's important to note that in these early days of telegraphs, you know, they, they it was really cool technology. Um, but they were really understaffed. Uh, te- telegraph telegraph offices, you know, mm-hmm. because um, there was so much demand, sure. and most people and businesses couldn't afford to have their own telegraph machine. So central offices would send these message boys on foot through busy city blocks, carrying all of these telegrams, which would kind of negate, d- depending on you know, like like peak capacity. Sure the speed of a, of a telegram right. versus a mail system. The idea being that, hey, I can send this message instantly, except I'm sending it instantly to a, a centralized point, And then from there, Where it still someone needs else to get to has to run it yeah. out to you anyway. 
1853, Latimer Clark would build a, a non-electric pneumatic tube that would carry messages between the Electric and International Telegraph Company's headquarters and their offices at the British Stock Exchange. Huh. Uh, and yes, a lot of telegraphs were stock-related, as we have talked about on the show before. Uh, stock exchanges kind of drive message technology. Yeah. It's crazy. The idea that you want to pounce on something as soon as possible, whether that's buying or selling. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they were really working to try and decrease the amount of time between a decision and when it can be acted upon. Right, right. Um, so his, his tubes, Latimer, uh, Latimer Clark's tubes, uh, were only one way. Gotcha. And most, most tubes up to this point were. So in other words, once it got to its destination, it had to be carried back physically to, to wherever. The, the first office, right, right. sure. Right. And around the same time, the Great Britain General Post Office would commission a study of Medhurst's ideas to try to to get some kind of larger postal tube system. Right. Something that could make the delivery of letters more efficient. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, because, I mean, this is, again, we've talked about this uh, in the Subways episode in particular. We talked about it, how this is the same period where London was experiencing explosive population growth. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the Industrial Revolution when suddenly... Uh, there are fewer there's fewer need of farmers and there's a greater uh, need of of labor in various ways in the cities and the urban areas. So you had this migration of people into cities, plus the you know the fact that people still make people. So there was that, too, going on. And uh, and so we have this this world where everything's getting more complicated because suddenly there's just so many more people living in the same physical space as before. Yeah. Uh, so so in the 1860s, the GPO would award a contract to one T.W. Rammel to construct a pneumatic tube system that could carry mail throughout London. And Rammel's done some really interesting stuff. Uh, in 1863, Rammel would build a two foot gauge pneumatic dispatch railway in central London. More on that in a bit, because it takes a couple of years before it opens. But in 1864, Rammel's Crystal Palace Pneumatic Railway opened. What? So Crystal Palace is a sect area in London. Okay. So it's, it's a location in London. Um, so it wasn't the, the pneumatic railway itself was not a Crystal Palace. I'm very disappointed. It would have been phenomenal, right? <laughs> so it ran on a track that was about 600 yards in length. That's around 550 meters. And the train cars had colored bristles to help create a seal in a 10 foot diameter or a three meter diameter tunnel. So kind of similar to those flexible skirts we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. except in this case it was Bristly. Bristly, yeah. Uh, So this massive fan would blow the carriage down onto one end of the track. Then the fan would reverse to create a partial vacuum to bring the carriage back. So it used both principles of pneumatic tubes. And a trip cost sixpence and a song. Or or, or just a sixpence. Yeah. I, I always think of, like, Oliver. You know, I think of, like, a Dickensian musical when I yeah. think about this stuff. In fact, I want to write one now. At any rate, should. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a good hobby. Next time on A Very Musical Text Step. <laughs> oh, man. No, you guys are going to request me to never sing. I know that. <laughs> so it operated for just two years. And depending upon whom you ask, it might or might not have been intended to serve as a model for an atmospheric railway, but mm-hmm. in a different sense. Because obviously this one was completely encapsulated in a tunnel, as opposed to the ones that had the tube that ran parallel, well, in between the rails. 
So this one, the rails are completely encapsulated in the tube. There are a couple of cool urban legends about what happened to this particular railway. Uh-huh. So one says it was just sealed off, that that once it stopped being used, they sealed off the tunnel. And that, in fact, there is this lone tunnel underneath London where if you were able to get access to it, you would see the tracks and even the carriage itself. Oh, wow. Uh, there was a lady who even reported that she had found it and there were skeletons sitting in the carriage dressed in Victorian outfits. Well, that seems unlikely. Yeah, I don't know. Like, like oh, we're shutting her down. Don't let anybody out. We're just <laughs> shutting off the lights and leaving. <laughs> Sorry, suckers. Yeah, you got your sixpence is long gone. <laughs> you are on the wrong train, yeah, buddy. That sounds like a Stephen King story. Um, <laughs> there's another urban legend that said the tunnel collapsed from a bomb which trapped the carriage and some passengers in it forever like there was a essentially a cave-in and they were stuck and died and are entombed in the carriage uh but those kind of bombs weren't really falling on london for another few decades yeah that's the thing and this this legend was circulating as early as 1930 but there was there were no bombs that were going off uh, in the 1860s at, at in London, like like that mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah, there was no blitz in yeah. the 1860s. No, and, and in fact, the blitz didn't even happen by the time this urban legend first started <laughs> circulating. And so it got stronger after World War II. I mean, more because partly because people were using underground stations and, oh, sure. and tube uh, tunnel lines mm-hmm. as uh, as a place to seek refuge mm-hmm. during the blitz. But uh, that was just an urban legend. And anyway, in 1865, the London Pneumatic Dispatch Railway opened. Right. And this one is not meant to carry passengers, uh, although I think someone wrote it the first time it opened. But the seems the, ill-advised. Yeah. Again, like that would hurt. Yeah, I think so, too. The cars themselves, uh, it's, I was reading one description. It was said they were coffin sized. Oh, oh, okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so you uh they're not meant to carry people but uh-huh. but freight and mail, mm-hmm. right? That this is part of the mail system. Uh and this comes directly from the Pall Mall Gazette on October 12th, 1865. And you know, it's in England. Okay, do so it. Do it. Yeah. The driving power is at Holborn and consists of two 24 horsepower steam engines. These set in motion a disc, the diameter of which is about 22 feet. The immense circular fan revolves with great rapidity in an air chamber, creating an almost irresistible atmosphere power, which, by the use of valves, can be used either for blowing the trains through the tubes or literally sucking them back again. So there you go. Good show. Thank you. Thank you. Pip, pip. Yeah, that was, uh, when I read that description, I was just so enchanted by the, by it. I was like, (laughs) an almost irresistible atmosphere power. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. With such great rapidity. (laughs) Yes, I was, oh, how British this, this newspaper is. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, very interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, back on the telegraph end in 1868, the the, the UK government would pass the Telegraphs Act, which nationalized the telegraph industry and wrapped it into the post office, thus meaning that the GPO acquired like really quite a lot of pneumatic telegraph lines, which various companies had been privately building out over the past decade. Now, this is also interesting because, again, it mirrors what happened with the subway system in London. The subways were built by private companies. So you had a bunch of different independent systems that were not connected right, together right. at first. Until the government realized that this was a, a serious public 
uh, good, good, yeah. and that you know they wanted to help it out as much as possible and, and conform everything so that it could be used as widely as possible. Exactly the same, yeah. Meanwhile, across the pond, <laughs> 1870, an inventor by the name of Alfred Eli Beach begins construction on a pneumatic subway in New York called the Beach Pneumatic Transit. Obviously named after the inventor, the subway did not transport commuters to a magical New York beach. No. Sadly. No. Uh, but here's some interesting and odd facts about that project. So first, Beach lied about what he was doing. I, I read somewhere that um, that he had like personal disagreements with one of the powers that were at yes. the time. Um, someone by the name of Boss Tweed. Oh, well, here's the thing. Originally, Boss Tweed backed Beach, but Boss Tweed fail, fell from favor quite famously through <laughs> corruption. Ooh. And then after the fact, Beach said, he was one of the men who stood in my way. He changed the story. And people said, OK, and went along with the story because they wanted to. They wanted this system to be put in place. But it, it ended up not being enough because there were other issues that would follow. But, yeah, originally... Beach and Boss Tweed were buddy buddy. Huh. And it was only after the fact when when Boss Tweed's going down, Beach is like, I'm not going down with you. <laughs> like that guy was always a pain in the butt. So 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 Beach really wanted to create this subway yeah. system. Um and you know, in order to do that, he would have to dig up part of a New York street. Yep. He knew that Tweed would not be excited about this thing. So he was like well, what if I were building a pneumatic mail system? Yeah, well, you know Wouldn't what? That be cool. We need a couple of a uh, couple pneumatic tubes, one to send mail one way, one to bring mail back the other way. Clearly, we can't have both go in the same tube because if messages need to be sent in both directions at then the same you'd, time, you'd have, then they're going to collide, or it's, it's not going to work. Pandemonium. Or, yeah, dogs and cats. Right. So what we need to do is have two tubes, and so they said, well, "All right, that that proposal we can get behind. You can you can build your your male pneumatic tubes." And then he says, "All right, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to house this pair of tubes within a larger tube to protect them. Right. So so I'm going to need to dig a, a you a know really a big hole. pretty big tunnel. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to be it's going to be pretty big. So Beach also came up with a tunneling shield, and we talked about those in the subway episode too. Tunne- tunneling shields are essentially a, a tunneling tool." That holds up the integrity of the tunnel while you're digging oh. so that people behind you can shore that up with brick or, or whatever they're oh, using cool. to, mm-hmm. to seal it off. So he goes in and he starts digging this tunnel. Everyone thinks he's digging tunnels for pneumatic mail tubes. He's like, ha ha, I now have this wonderful device that I'm going to demonstrate to people to show them how magical this is. You can ride in a carriage underground, thus Avoiding all the dangerous traffic that's happening up on the surface level where you've got, you know, horse-drawn carriages going willy-nilly all over the place and pass, uh, you know, pedestrians everywhere. And cats and dogs, yeah. Exactly. Back to the cats and dogs. So he ended up uh, building a, a track that was only 312 feet long or about 95 meters. That's about a city block. Yeah. And the tunnel was 8 feet in diameter or 2.4 meters. And about 20 people could ride on the carriage at a single time. And he himself funded the construction almost entirely of, out of his own pocket. So hundreds of thousands of dollars that Beach personally put forward to this because he, he really believed in it. Uh, if you wanted to take a ride on it once it opened, so he opens it and, mm-hmm. and you actually had to go in through uh, a department store. They had a um, an entrance to the station, quote unquote station, 
through their basement. <laughs> the station itself was lit by gas lanterns, had a fountain with goldfish in it, and <laughs> two <laughs> statues of mercury what? Uh, uh, flanking the tunnel. Yeah. Very understated was Mr. Beach. I can tell. <laughs> and so a, if you wanted to ride, you needed two bits. 25 cents. 25 cents. So two bits in order for you to ride. And that would give you a trip to the end of the line and back again. And all ticket, uh, all tickets that were bought, all that money was given to charity. In fact, I think it was given to charity for children whose parents were, whose fathers were soldiers who had, who had died. Ah, uh-huh. So it was, a uh, it was all going to a charitable cause. And it was. Oh, su- right. Cause this was in the 1870s. So yeah. Sure. Yeah. So it was supposed to be the birth of the subway system of New York, but it did not get much traction. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, boss, the boss tweed corruption scandal happened and then Beach had to distance himself from boss tweed. Then, uh, he, there was a stock market crash, uh, which ended up pulling a lot of funding away from any possibility of extending this outward. Also, there were people saying like, could this actually be efficient? Um, we couldn't necessarily run multiple trains on a single track. It would all be one train per track mm-hmm. because you couldn't, you couldn't control their movement between stations otherwise. Like, how would you, how would you get train A to, you know, unless you have like a really complex system of blowers. Right, right. Um, so they started saying, well, this doesn't look like it's going to be very efficient. There's not, any, there's no money to support it. And so, uh, also the rise of electricity meant that ultimately it became moot. And again, you can listen to how subways work to learn about the rest of that story. Mm -hmm. So while it was never really taken seriously as a means of transportation for passengers, Mm -hmm. Beach's original proposal to build those pneumatic mail tubes, (laughs) which he totally wasn't serious about, did actually catch on. Uh, Not as he originally imagined them, which were these like 10 foot diameter tubes above city streets designed for both people and mail, which he was calling the uh, U.S. pneumatic dispatch. Right. Yeah. So that that never happened. Yeah. I'm sorry. Clearly, he was he was influenced, at least in part, by the the London pneumatic dispatch, uh, which was being successful as far as the mail goes. And um, so. He would uh, his his work would live on within that system, although I think he died before before it was Aww. actually built. Uh, yeah. So it's a very sad episode. Yeah. There's well, I mean, you know, progress is built upon a lot of hard work and sacrifice and not in some cases it comes to us at the expense of ideas that seemed awesome, but ultimately were untenable. However, something is, you know, salvageable from the idea. And I think that's the case with a. Uh, with beach. Now we just got through 1870, but we still have some more history to get through. Plus we have to talk about how pneumatic tubes are being used today. So we're going to save that for episode number two, but trust me, the rest of the story is just as interesting. And in some cases just as crazy. So you'll need to tune in Lauren. You'll be joining us for that one as well, right? Indeed. And where else can they see your work, Lauren? Well, these days I am working on other How Stuff Works shows such as Brain Stuff, Forward Thinking, mm-hmm. and What the Stuff. 
Yep. You can you can find all of those on HowStuffWorks.com, or you can go to BrainStuffShow.com, or you can go to FWThinking.com. Or, or the you YouTubes. Go to the YouTubes. Yep. You can just Google Lauren Vogelbaum if you can spell Lauren <laughs> Vogelbaum. Um, I mean, even if you can't really, uh, you can you can find me. I have faith in you guys. Excellent. And, of course, if you want to drop a, a line to me and have a suggestion for a future topic, whether it's you know a, an actual a podcast topic or someone I should have on as a guest host or someone I should have on as an interview, let me know. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is techstuffhsw. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 